up to Matthew chapter 6. One thing is for certain about the teaching of Jesus. That when he taught, he didn't just teach about something. He usually modeled how to do it. And this is especially true of prayer. He did teach about prayer, but he also actually showed the disciples how to pray by actually praying and giving them a what we'd call a model prayer. And so we're going to spend some time over the next three weeks looking at, at what Jesus taught about prayer. And watch this, also what he modeled about prayer. This was brought home to me uh, over 20 years ago when I was discipling a young man named Andy Hindman. Um, you don't know Andy. I met him in Georgia. That's where God saved him. And uh, we became friends. And so I was discipling Andy, and we would meet about every week at Wendy's. And a lot of good discipleship happens over food, by the way. We'd gather, and we'd just kind of talk and have a hamburger and go over doctrine, theology. We'd learn. I'd ask her questions. He was older than me, but a new believer. And one day he said to me, he said, Todd, um, how in the world do I pray? And so like every good American pastor, I got an outline together, right? <laughs> I thought, I'm going to give him some notes on how to pray. And so I formulated a few thoughts, kind of wrote some things down. We met the next week for, for our discipleship meal, and I pulled him out. We talked, and he said, but, but, uh, but, but I want to know how to pray. I'm like, well, I just, I just told you how to pray. I just showed you. I mean, he goes, but how do you pray? I was like, oh, well. So I said, well, uh, and I thought back to Matthew 6. Jesus said a few words about prayer. Then he just prayed. So I said, well, I'll just pray. So we bought our food and we sat down and I just prayed. And I thought, well, he'll be ready to pray next week. I've given him instruction. I've given him a model perhaps. Next week we meet. We buy our food. We sit down. Okay, your turn to pray, Andy? He goes, not today. And that went on for about at least four or five months, I think. I'd say, you want to pray today? Nope. We'd eat. We'd talk spiritual stuff, doctrine, theology. We'd pray. Next week, same thing. You want to pray? Nope. One day, I kind of quit asking him that because I thought, well, he's just going to tell me no. We bought our food. We sat down, and I said, well, let's pray. And he said, today I pray, <laughs> just like that. I said, okay, and he began to pray, and I learned something in that situation that Jesus obviously knew what he was doing. He's the master teacher. He doesn't just give us words about something. He shows us how to do it by modeling it, and so we're going to take that approach as well. We're going to learn about prayer in these three weeks, but we're also going to spend some time praying. You might call it practicing. We're going to implement what we learn about it. Now, don't separate this three-week mini-series from our series in James, all right? Remember, we've been in James since the beginning of the year. It's January. We've been looking at, a, at the whole book in a series called what? Shoe Leather Theology. We're trying to see how what we believe gets all the way down to our feet. In James 5, he talks about prayer, and that's the posture of the church, when we're suffering, when we're sick, when we're bent over is kind of the, the real Greek word there. When, when life's tough, when trials are taking their toll on you, pray is what he says. 
He used Elijah as an example. So we looked last week at Elijah and what he taught us about prayer. And so the elders just decided, and I think we've looked at how can we make the most out of prayer. We have for a couple of years now said, we want prayer to be more embedded into our church. So as we came upon this passage, we decided to push the brakes a little harder and take three weeks to talk about prayer with this intent that it would get all the way down to our knees. We want our theology to get all the way to our feet to live it out. But in this case, I would say, I want the theology of prayer to get all the way down to our knees so that our posture is one of just taking it before the Lord, bowing down and saying, Lord, we're here in front of you. So that's our goal. We're going to talk about praying like Jesus taught. We're going to root ourselves in Matthew chapter 6, especially verses 5 through 15. Now, your Bibles are open there, I'm sure. I want to just kind of walk you through my plan for today. I want to take a macro perspective for a bit. We'll look at kind of where this passage is tucked. It's in a three-chapter sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. We'll then take a micro perspective. Follow me here now, okay? A macro larger. We'll take a micro perspective and we'll look just at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 6, which is kind of where I'm focused And then I want to take, you know, watch this here. I want to take a Moro perspective. You've never heard that word. I just made it up this week, all right? So what in the world is a Moro perspective? Because I don't want our macro perspective and the micro perspective to just be knowledge that puffs up. I want there to be something that moves us to action. I want the Word of God to create movement. I want it to create motion. So we're going to take some time to look at what does it mean to put this kind of praying into action? What I call the Moro perspective, okay? So that's our plan today. We'll take questions. So if you have some, text them in. The number's on your, uh, inside your worship folder there on the study guide or the sermon note sheet. We'll take some of those as well. So let's dig right in, can we? Let's, look, let's get the macro perspective of, of where this section of prayer takes place. It's in a three-chapter thing called the Sermon on the Mount. So if you were to fly up to 30,000 feet... What you would see is that this this short section on prayer falls within a larger sermon about what it means to live as a disciple. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's really Christ not necessarily speaking to the crowds, but giving his followers, his disciples, the radical way they're to live. Okay, within that three uh, three chapter sermon, there is a chapter that talks about several topics. I'll show you in our lab kind of what this looks like. Here's how I've marked my Bible in chapter 6. I want to show this to you. I won't actually mark it today because I did this in advance. Some weeks we actually mark it while we're studying through it. And it's not the easiest to see, I know. But I want you to see that chapter 6, he talks about three topics. Remember, 5 to 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6, he covers giving in chapters uh, verses 1 to 4, praying 5 to 15, and fasting 16 to 18. Three habits that disciples or followers of Christ chase, pursue. Now, my my gut feeling here, if I could press pause for a minute, is to say that most of you kind of tackle giving and praying as a follower of Christ. You realize that's just part of the DNA of a disciple. But I would urge you, this is not today's message, but I would urge you to realize in the same message that Christ gave, in the same flow is the idea of fasting. I would just kind of press on you here a little bit. Even in this 30-second time out, don't neglect fasting. There's ways to do it biblically. 
is talked about here, but it is a, a very good spiritual discipline, just like prayer and just like giving, that can pay great spiritual dividends. Okay, well, back to our regular programming now, right? So in chapter 6, he talks about giving, praying, and fasting. Look at the verses now about prayer. You see verses 5 and 6, it's kind of one paragraph. And then 7 to 13 make up another paragraph. 14 and 15 show another paragraph. So 5 to 7 is three chapters. 6 is about three topics. And even the one topic of prayer seems to have three kind of paragraphs. I think preachers, maybe the biblical writers like threes. I don't know. But within this idea of prayer, he seems to kind of give us some, some instruction about prayer but he also models how to pray. Now, let me say at a very transparent moment, it, it, this is a hard passage to break up. We've chosen to break it in three weeks. I'll teach on five and six. Brad next week will teach on seven through 13. I'll come back, teach on 14 and 15. But the truth is, this would probably, I don't see if it'd work better, but it, it's hard to separate all of these because the Lord's Prayer, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, really is an example of all the things he talks about. You'll see that as we unfold this series. But we felt it best to kind of keep it divided for this reason. We want to really urge upon you the importance and value and the premium we place on prayer. So we're going to tackle verses 5 through 15 in this three-week series. Notice, though, how certain phrases track through all of these first 18 verses of chapter 6, such as the idea of when you give. Here's the same phrase in verse 5. When you pray... Same verse in uh, verse 16, when you fast. The idea of reward is mentioned in all of it. There's a reward in the first part, a reward in the second, a reward in the third. He's encouraged us not to do it as the hypocrites in every section. So you can see that even in chapter 6, these three disciplines have a lot of uh, of phrases that connect them. We're going to focus just on verses 5 through 15 about prayer. If you were to say, Todd, what's a good outline of chapters 6, verses 5 through 15? How could I get my hands around what Christ says about prayer? Here's how I would see it. I'll show this simple outline that we're going to kind of follow along in these three weeks. I'll focus on the first one this week, but really, we don't pray to be seen by men. Instead, we pray humbly to God. That's verses 5 and 6. Brad, next week, will talk about how we don't pray to be heard by men, the idea of repetition and complexity. Instead, we pray simply to God. And then I'll come back and talk about how we don't pray with unforgiveness towards men. Instead, we pray gratefully to God. So this is kind of those uh, 10 or 11 verses. And I want to focus today on what it means to pray humbly before God by taking a micro uh, understanding of now verses 5 and 6. So let's look at these two verses. You've kind of seen the macro version. Let's put our eye to the microscope. Let's get a micro understanding of these five of these verses, verses 5 and 6. I'll read you, follow with me. The Lord says about prayer, He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. He's speaking there of the Pharisees, those religious rulers. Why why should we not be like them? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. Here's the first reason. They obviously love the attention that the public prayer was garnering them. In the Jewish culture, you would start a synagogue service by asking a, a, a man to come to the front and begin by offering a prayer to God. This is what the Pharisees loved to do. And it wasn't because they loved God or loved prayer. 
They didn't love praying to God. They loved being seen by men. You'll see this in the text. But it says next that they loved us to pray at the street corners. And that's an odd phrase. I mean, I don't think it fits your culture, does it? You don't go to the intersection of 3rd Street and Ankeny Boulevard and expect to pray at noon, do you? You don't go to the street corner of Delaware and 1st Street, 5 o'clock, all the traffic's coming in, and raise your hands and expect to pray. You don't do that. But this is exactly what Christ is referring to. He's referring to arranging, that the Pharisees would arrange their schedule to be at the intersections of very busy places when commerce was high so that they could then play the role of being something they weren't. Now watch this. If you look at these two scenarios, one's kind of formal and official, isn't it? It's a set place. The synagogue, you go, you kind of meet the right people, check in with the right person, maybe they'll ask you to pray. You can appear to be something you're not. It's kind of standard and formal, planned. The other one seems more spontaneous. I'll just find me a corner, maybe it'll be busy, and I'll just... But in both cases, the root deception is the same. The religious Pharisees trying to be something they're not, and he's using prayer as the avenue to accomplish that. That's wicked. That's seeing God not as a treasure, but as a tool to get our way. Christ warns against praying this way. He warns against using prayer this way. He says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What is their reward? That they got exactly what they were after, which is what? People thought they were something they weren't. To use the phrase in the Bible, they were seen by men. So so get this. The Pharisees wanted folks to think they were something spiritual when they really weren't. So they would pray in public places and in ways that would garner attention. And people thought exactly that. The problem is, though, they only thought that for a moment, and it was not the kind of estimation or evaluation that really would last. It wasn't eternal. So it had no real effect upon their life. Short term, no eternal difference. Didn't matter to God at all. Which is why he says in verse 6, but when you pray. In other words, in contrast to how the Pharisees were praying, the hypocrites, here's how you should pray. He says, go into your room, And shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you see the contrast there? Here's someone who's content with with an audience of one, the humility to pray in the midst of a singular being, God. Does it need the recognition of men, the applause of others? This person, he or she is, is happy to find that, that private place and is content knowing that because God sees them, all is well. In fact, you notice the last phrase that it says, the Father who sees in secret will reward you. What is the reward that God gives? You ever ask yourself that question? Well, the answer is not outside of the text. The answer is exactly what it says. The answer is, God sees you. That's the reward. Isn't it much better to be seen by God and to know, be known by Him than to be seen and known only by men? The answer to that is yes. You can nod like this, all right? So the text tells us exactly what he's, what he's asking. Would you rather have men think you're something you're really not and God 
not even care about that and realize it's just false? It's whipped cream? It's pretense? Or would you rather have one singular being see you, God, the three-in-one, the Trinitarian God, see you in a room where no one else is and yet say, that's the one I'm looking for. That makes an eternal difference. That lasts for, that, that's what we're after. Does that make sense, guys? So the contrast is really stark and really clear. By the way, when you see the phrase, go into your room and shut the door, it's hard to translate perhaps into our American culture, our English language. We typically think of closet. You might think of a small room. In the Jewish culture, this probably referred to a singular type of place. It was the only place in the house that could be locked from the inside. Now, maybe it was there for security purpose in times of danger. We're not sure. But from what we gather from history, from what I've read, this is about the only room in the house where you could go in, close the door, and be locked from the inside. The point is, Christ was saying to the disciples, what they'd hear is this, oh, that's the place where I won't be bothered. That's the place of the right kind of privacy. That's where, that's where it won't matter. No one could get in and see me anyway. No one's going to barge in there. I wouldn't go to that room in my Jewish house if I wanted people to see me. That's what he's saying. And so this was heard in their culture in a, in a tremendously contrasting way. You go to your room, the one that only locks from the inside, the only room you've got. You shut the door, and when you're sure, then, well, no one's going to barge in and see me. I guess there'll be no attention in this. Then you pray to your Father, and then the one who really matters, he'll see you, and he'll reward you. But his reward will be lasting, eternal, and significant. This is the prayer of humility. It's the prayer that, that really marks God's disciples. We don't pray like the Pharisees. Instead, we pray as Jesus showed us here in humility. Do you, do you see the contrast? In fact, let's play a little word-guessing game here. The, the Pharisees, because they wanted men to see them, they wanted to be able to be thought of as you know spiritual or God-fearing, they did all their praying in ways that would garner attention that was all driven by a five-letter word begins with P. Say it with me. Pride. We're not to pray that way. We're to pray in humility, content to come before God in private slash secret, knowing that He sees us and He's the one that matters. Now, that's really the the simplest textual understanding of those two verses. Again, we'll lay out more the next few weeks, but I think Christ first of all says to us, humble prayer marks his disciples. Not attention-seeking kind of praying or pride-rooted kind of praying, but humble praying that's content with the fact that God sees us, knows us, and loves us. Now, let me pa- unpack a little more in what I call this week a take-home contrast. We normally have a what? A take-home truth. We try to take all the verses we're looking at, the different thoughts. We try to you know, kind of condense it into one singular thought or sentence. This week, though, as I labored over this contrast in the past few weeks, just kind of mulling over this, um, you know, these two things juxtaposed against each other, I, I thought, I think what we need to have today is a take-home contrast, not a take-home truth that will help us understand more about what it means to pray in a humble way. So let me give you this take-home contrast and kind of maybe unpack about three things that I think constitute humble prayer. I'll do this somewhat quickly. But here's the take-home contrast for today, that our prayers to God 
should be rooted in humility, not pride. That's the contrast in verses 5 and 6. So what does that mean, to have a humble prayer? I think the text would say to us three things. Authenticity, not hypocrisy. It's pretty clear from the text. We're not to be pharisaical. We're not to be pretentious. We're to come before God authentically, genuinely. He says, don't pray like the hypocrites. You know what hypocrites are, don't you? They're someone who wears a mask. In fact, in the Greek culture, the player, the actor who would play multiple parts, but he was still one person, he was called a hypocrite. He would put on a mask and he would hold it in front of his face when he was one character. He would take the mask off and be another person. Same guy, but same girl, but he would, or she would, would often just have the different parts. This word now used to describe someone who has the same body but different faces. We're not to pray in a, a hypocr- hypocritical, pretentious, duplistic fashion. Meaning we're to pray authentically. Be the same person you are as you approach God. Lay yourself out just transparently, nakedly, openly. After all, church, can we just be frank? Do you think you're really informing God of anything when you pray? (laughs) Do you think he says, oh, I didn't know that. Thanks for letting me know. Now, here's how I view prayer. It's coming to the surgery table cutting your chest cavity open and saying, God, you've already seen the x-rays. Now just take a live look. He knows what's in there. Let's just have God look in authentically. It also means praying with God's reward in view, not what others think of you, or we could call it man's reward or your reputation. I'll never forget Growing up, and, and you know from my pastoring here among you, I have high regard for how I was raised. I think my parents are my heroes. Um, I was raised in a, a beautiful home. I had a great church growing up. None of that was of my decision. God sovereignly placed me there with my parents in that church. It was a beautiful greenhouse. I got, I got no baggage. But I've got some funny memories. Can I say that to you? One of them was we have tons of revival services. We had tons of conferences. Our church was just... Uh, it was just headstrong on week-long types of meetings, missionary conferences, Bible conferences. And I always thought it was odd. I even asked my dad, somebody says, do you think they talked that way at home when preachers would get up? I mean, they'd be back here talking to some other preachers, and they'd be called on to pray. And so they're talking like this. They come to the front, let us pray. And then suddenly they had this voice I never heard. Like, where'd you get that voice? That wasn't the voice I heard back there. It's like, and they used words that they'd never used before. Uh, I knew one guy, he was older than me, but I knew of him, and I had talked to him just briefly, but he had this grovelly sound in the pulpit. It's kind of an old-time revivalist. He'd get up there, and he'd talk like this. He'd get done, he'd go back, he'd talk regular. I thought, that seems odd. That seems to me, to be frank with you, disingenuous. Like you're portraying something in a preachery mode that really is not how you actually are. Jesus warns against that when you're praying. So if you were called upon to pray at our church and your voice suddenly changed and you used words that you've never thought of, you can make up words, I'm good with that, but you know, if you suddenly became this thesaurus of information, if you suddenly begin to talk about concepts and theological things that no one's ever heard come from your mouth, but boy, when you're praying, man, you can let it fly. That's a sign not of spirituality, that's a sign 
of hypocrisy. That's not a sign that you're concerned with God's reward. That's a sign you're more concerned with what men think of you. That's a problem. Is that clear enough? Does that make sense? We should have the, the, I don't want to say courage, but the freedom that in the body of Christ, we're approaching God, and so we're going to be the same. I don't mean that we flippantly approach God, but we're, we're not going to try to be something we're not. We're going to be authentic, content that God sees us, whether it's public or private. Because, guys, catch this. Christ here is not condemning public prayer. Hear this. He wasn't calling for the synagogue to change, at least at this point, to change how they open their services. The point is, if you're going to pray in public, don't do it for the wrong reason. That's what he's saying. I even experience this currently sometimes in just different pastors' fellowships where the talk prior to the prayer meeting may be about sports, life, raising kids, marriage. And those are good conversations. Nothing wrong with those. But to be frank with you, sometimes we never, and I've been guilty of this, you know, you, you don't really weave in the gospel into your conversations much until someone says, let's pray. And I've heard pastors pray in ways that I've never heard them talk. Something about that doesn't ring well with me. It seems like when we're talking out in the cafe, we should be as free to talk about how we're gospel-centered and what God's doing in our life and how He saved us, how He's keeping us saved. We should be as quick and as free to rejoice in those spiritual concepts as we are when we're doing it while we're praying. Does that make sense, guys? I want us to be careful that we don't look at the Pharisees and think, man, those guys, they were hypocrites. When in, in reality, sometimes in our own life, we do the very same thing. We pray and say things in prayer that we never talk about other places. I don't think that's the best situation. Let's be as free to talk about God's work in our life and His salvific character and all that He's doing for us and all that He has done. And, and just, all, just let's be free to bring that up in conversations and not try to leave those things out just as we would when we're praying. All right? Just a, just a little nudge for you there. And then lastly, I would say this. We, we should be praying humbly and aiming this direction as we're concerned more with intimacy, not impression. And in one sense, you could say these three things all say the same thing. But that's what preaching is. It's saying the same thing to you multiple times till you finally get it, right? So, so really, humble prayers are realizing that this is about communion with God. It's fellowship. It's this one-on-one time with God. It's, it's not really a time to try to impress people. I mean, imagine if, if I did this to you. If when Julie and I walked in here, if we were arm in arm, I had my arm around her, kiss her on the cheek. We were laughing and acting all, you know, lovey-dovey, snuggle up on the front row during some of the songs. Church is over and we're leaving and we're just really close and we're just talking like crazy, bubbly. Then one day you come over. Hey, Todd, and she's in the kitchen. She's barking out orders. She's in the living room and she's like, hey, be quiet down in there. I respond back, hey, shut up, woman. I'm, I'm just... I wasn't going to be funny. I'm just telling you. What if, what if it was really that way? What if you saw your pastor and his wife act very unloving at home? What if it got to be eight or nine, we were playing cards, let's say, and you were there, and then I said, I'm tired, I'm going to bed, and I went down to the basement. She's like, well, he just lives here. We're roommates. You'd come out there like, that's weird that you would in church act like everything was so great. 
But at home, you, you don't even hardly speak. You're not intimate at all. But at church, it looks like you're, you're madly in love. I got some hot marriage going on. You would think that's weird, and you should. That's the Pharisees. Let's act like we're really in love with God when people are watching. And let's use words that make them think, man, God and I, we're tight, we're close, we're intimate. But when you're not watching, we're just roommates. This is what Christ is getting at about prayer. If you only pray, if you only appear to like to pray when other people are watching, when the lighthouse says, let's pray now. Oh, oh yeah, let's do that for sure. It's the first time you haven't prayed, it's the first time you prayed since the last lighthouse meeting, right? I mean, there's something wrong if the only time we act interested in prayer is when people are watching. What should drive us and motivate us is the fact that when we pray, God sees and knows, and He's the only one that really matters. That should be sufficient. That should make us content with approaching God and praying. And that's what Christ is saying to us. And so I just want to kind of lean in on you for a little bit and just let you know. The take-home contrast is that we should root our prayers in humility, which means you're going to pray authentically with a view to God's reward, which is that he sees you. And you're going to aim for intimacy. This is some kind of ways to kind of flesh out what it means to pray a humble prayer. Now, I want to dig a little deeper before I take a few questions and give you a moro perspective. Remember macro? The larger view of the three chapters, the one chapter, the one paragraph. Micro, the, large, uh, the, the, the intense view of the two verses. Here's a moro perspective. In other words, I want to get your feet moving. I want to help you get some motion underneath your theology. Here's a couple of threads that I think will help you pray in humble ways authentically, um, without a view to man's reputation of you, with a view towards intimacy. Here's a couple of things that I've found in Scripture that will move you towards that end, all right? I've derived these from five prayers that I discovered in the Bible. I wouldn't say discovered, but five prayers are in the Bible that I just kind of spent some more time in the past few weeks. I would say these are at least five prayers of humility in the Bible. Are there more? Certainly. Are there more prayers in general? By all means. But are these five prayers, five examples of humble prayers? Yes. And I've located about two threads that run through all of them. First of all, here's the prayers. Matthew 7 is the story about the father who wouldn't dare give his children a stone when they ask for a fish, right? Luke 18, 1 through 14 are two parables. One about the persistent widow, and the other about the uh, tax collector, the Pharisee. Matthew 6 is the Lord's prayer. And then Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance and confession. When he says, have mercy on me, O God. His prayer of restoration. So five prayers that I think show a lot of humility and are kind of aimed at authenticity. They're aimed at intimacy. They're aimed at what God thinks, not what man thinks. What threads run through these prayers? I would say there's two main ones, and then I'll take some questions. I think there's a relational thread and a confessional thread. Let me walk you through these. Stay engaged with me, okay? In other words, 
Humble prayers mean that you are willing to pray relationally, that you understand who God is and who you are. Now, I'm going to be very direct with you for, for a few more minutes. Listen very carefully, because when I ask you to think, well, who is God? You probably thought of a thousand titles for God, and you should. He's healer, king, sustainer, creator, the almighty. I agree with all of those. But did you know, listen very carefully, church, did you know in praying there is one specific title that is most important to to the children of God? It is the term Father. Church, listen. God does not abdicate his other roles, his other titles at all. But it is very clear that when he taught his disciples to pray, He started the first word in the prayer is the word Father. It's a relational word that says, watch this, uh, we're not a bother to God. But most of us pray, we approach God like we're taking up his time. I know you're busy and you got more to do than listen to me. Like he actually is a finite being that wears a watch. (laughs) By the way, God... Uh, enables the entire universe to stay together. And he, he doesn't need sleep. He never gets tired. So you're, you're not bothering God. But even more simply, you know why you're not bothering God? Because you're his child. He went after you, regenerated you, He bought you and saved you. He adopted you. He has labeled you his son or his daughter. You're not a bother to God. In all humble praying, there is this foundational understanding that we are relationally rooted to our Father. Who are you? You're a son or a daughter. And who is God? He's your Father. This is what the point of the parable is, but excuse me, of Matthew 7, not the parable. When Jesus said, and it's a rhetorical question, but watch this, church. He said, how many of you would, would give your son or daughter a, a stone if they asked for a fish? There's no answer to that question because no good dad would do that. His point was saying, well, then ask your father for the Holy Spirit. He'll give him to you. That's the point. That's what a good father does. And the whole context is prayer. We can't fathom a father who would actually say, oh, you want a piece of, of bread or, or a fish? Yeah, bite this stone. We don't, that, that's inconceivable. And yet sometimes we approach God like, Lord, could, could you? And God is a graciously good dad. He loves you. This is also, I think, the point of the parable in Luke 18 about the judge and the widow. We often read that parable and we try to assign roles. Well, I'm the widow. I got to keep coming to God and God's the judge and maybe if I get through to him, he'll finally answer me. The point of the parable is just the opposite. God is not like that judge. In fact, the end of the parable says this, God will answer you speedily. He'll rescue his children. The point is God's not a, a judge who in the middle of the night is getting bothered by someone. The point is, God is a good father. He loves his kids. He'll give you everything you need when you need it. Don't worry. So guys, can I just say to you that humble, authentic, intimate prayer is rooted 
by a, a foundation. The relationship is important. You've got to have that root established that you are not a bother to God, but you're a child who's approaching the throne of the king, yes, but you're invited as, a, as an heir, as a son. What a beautiful picture. What a delightful invitation. Amen. That makes me want to pray just to take a knee before the God who sees and just talk. I'm reminded of this concept every Christmas when we watch home videos. Um, I don't know if they're actually videos. We've got them transferred to a hard drive, I think. So maybe it's just called home footage now. You know, we used to have videos, actual big boxes with tape in them, you know. Anyway, so every year we kind of review those around Christmas time. We laugh. There's one we almost always watch, though. Uh, Brett was about three or four. We were living in Atlanta, and it was Christmas morning, and um, we had purchased for him a, one of those tool workbenches. It's made by, like, play school. It's pretend. It is not real. You couldn't build a thing on it, I'm sure. But it's kind of, I think, uh, black or gray or maybe blue and red. I'm not sure. It's got yellow, three holes for three yellow nails. It's got a little hammer. It's got a red saw so long. If you know what I'm talking about, admit you're old and nod your head, would you? Awesome. I'm liking that. Okay. So we got one. I had a little roof over it, you know. We put a blanket over it. Christmas morning comes, and he runs in. We jerk the blanket off, and he runs over, grabs the hammer, starts nailing the nails. You know, he saw, and he picks up a yellow nail. And we had a, a large video camera at that time, I think. So we're filming, you know, and he picks up a little yellow nail on the hammer, and he turns to the camera, and he starts hammering like this real fast, about like I'm doing. He's not stopping. Very intense. Daddy got me just what I wanted. He's still hammering. Daddy got me just what I wanted. High little voice, you know. He's three or four. He's still hammering. I got the picture. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm filming. We're good. Daddy got me just what I wanted. He runs back to his, you know. It was funny to us. We were there. We laugh every year. It's not funny to you. I realize that. <laughs> but here's the point. Brett never asked for the workbench. I don't think he knew it existed. He was three or four. And if I can say this to you transparently, what he did know is he had a mom and dad who loved him. So whatever we got him, I suspect would have been just what he wanted. Does that make sense? That's how we should pray. Like, God, you know, you're only going to give me good things. It may seem like a trial right now. I don't understand how this unfolds. I don't see how this really is in your plan. Like, this seems hard, but you can be nothing other than good. You are a good and gracious God. So whatever you give me is exactly what I wanted. That's what praying is. It's just humbly coming to God, telling in your heart, authentically, intimately, knowing who he is, knowing you are, and just letting that relationship root you firmly every single day as you communicate with God the Father. The second thing is this, praying confessionally. What I mean by this is in all of those examples of prayer, there's a clear understanding of what we've done, and by that I mean wrong, or what we haven't done right, and yet what God has done in spite of us. What did David say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's what the... Sinner said in that parable, unlike the Pharisee who said, I'm glad I'm not like the sinner, 
you know? David asked for God to restore him. Here in the Lord's Prayer, we see this idea of forgive us, help us to forgive others. So in confessional praying, the thread that needs to run through is this. God, I don't deserve what you've given, but your goodness as a father has given me everything I don't deserve. And that, just, that idea of forgiveness motivates us. So here's what I say to you about these two threads. In praying relationally, we let the word Father root us. And in praying confessionally, we let the word forgiveness move us. Does that make sense? Because if you're struggling in relationships, if you're having difficulty with perspective, all you've got to do is think back to what, what did God do when I was wicked and lost and far away? God found me. And out of unconditional love and with incredible grace, he brought me to himself. I had nothing to do with it. I was as a sheep going astray. My depravity was deep. I was hell-bent. It may have been in self-righteousness. It may have been in blatant wickedness. But I was so far from God. And in the middle of my sin, while I was so far from God, he reached out and saved me. That type of confession of who God is, our Savior, to those of us who are sinners, man, it aims your prayers in a beautiful direction. It keeps you humble because you realize nothing to the cross I bring, only to the cross I claim. So humble prayer is what God's after. What is humble praying? It's authentic, intimate, and how do we show that? By praying relationally with the word Father always in mind and praying confessionally with the concept of forgiveness always in mind. Before we wrap up, let's see if there's any questions you might have today. Should we pray to Jesus or God the Father? I believe we can pray, we should pray to God the Father through Jesus. It's not wrong, I don't think, or a sin to just simply pray to Jesus. Jesus is God. But we know we have access, Hebrews says, to God the Father through the high priestly work of Jesus, God the Son. So I would say in a most biblical answer, maybe in a most technical fashion, we follow the Lord's Prayer's example. We pray to the Father through the Son. And I would say this, by the way. And I have this in my practice personally. I would say we pray to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. Okay? Now, maybe you're wondering what that means. Uh, that could be debated among some. But I will say this. We can't deny the fact that twice, at least, if not more, we're commanded to pray in the Spirit. So, I would encourage you to keep this little thought in mind. We pray to God through the Son in the Spirit. Now, it's much like the phrase, Lord willing. If you don't say that phrase each time you pray, does that mean you've sinned? No. We know what's in our hearts, our attitudes are right, and so you don't have to say that every time. But I think a recognition that we can approach God the Father in time of need, as Hebrews says, to obtain grace and mercy, is only made possible because of God the Son. We must have that recognition, which is why we pray in Jesus' name. Most of the time we use that phrase. Okay, 
So, good question. Should we pray to Jesus or the Father? I would say we should pray to God through Jesus in the Spirit. Is there one more question, Alan? Is there a benefit to reciting the Lord's Prayer? The only benefit that I would see is that would help you have a better memory. You think I'm a heretic now? No, because of one word in the text. That's a good question, by the way. The text says that Jesus says, pray then like this. It doesn't say pray this necessarily. Is it okay to recite it? By all means. Our staff has sometimes recited it before our group prayer time or after. Uh, and when I was a youth pastor, we often recited it before certain mission trips. It's not wrong to recite it. But I will say this to you, and I'm, I'm aware of the emails that will come. There's nothing more spiritual about saying this prayer than perhaps the one in Ephesians or Colossians. Does that make sense? In fact, the Lord's Prayer here is actually an example or a model of all the things he's saying about prayer. We'll cover them this week and then the next two weeks. So, is there a benefit to reciting the Lord's Prayer? The benefit's going to be that memorization is good for you. So that'll help you. But it would be no more beneficial than other prayers you say. So I wouldn't say there's a greater benefit to this prayer. Is there a benefit to prayer? Yes. But is there a greater benefit, which I think the question kind of leans that way. Is there a greater benefit to reciting this prayer? There's not. There's benefit in prayer. Amen, church? Is there one more, Alan? Okay. So because I told you at the beginning that we wanted to make sure we didn't just learn about it, but we wanted to practice it, I'm going to give you some time now, not in groups, but just on your own, to practice praying humbly. I'm going to lead you through some prayers or some time to pray relationally, to pray confessionally. We'll sing some songs, have communion, and I'll send you out, okay? But can we put some of this into practice? Can we, just for a few moments, not concern, watch this church, listen, don't move around, listen. Could we not concern ourselves, this will be hard, but could we not concern ourselves with who's watching us? Isn't that the point of this text? Don't pray because of who's looking at you, what they're thinking. So I know that we are in a crowd, but could we just for a minute draw a circle around our chair? And and I know it's not an actual room or a closet, I realize that, but maybe symbolically, could you partition off your chair and could you just go to God's presence for a bit where only He sees? Let's bow our heads, can we? Our band's going to join me. And I just want to ask you as much as possible to just begin to pray to your Father who is in heaven. Of all of his titles, this is the one that his children use when praying. For sure, praise him for his mighty acts as creator. Wonder at his sovereign control. But you could not talk to him if you were not his child and he was not your father. (laughs) Man, that's sweet. That the God of the universe who holds it all together knows exactly where you are right now. 
Yeah, that's a good dad, church. That's a good father, isn't it? Amen.